You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, biologist and science writer Nicola Temple makes the case that not all processed foods are, in fact, created equal. Nicola believes that food technology could, in the long run, actually save the planet. I think that we need to be a bit more rational in our thinking about what processed foods are. We have a long history with them. We are arguably obligate processed food eaters. I mean, if we tried to go back to an entirely raw diet, we would really struggle with it. Also coming up, we learn to make seared shrimp tacos with tomatoes and cotilla. And Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett explain what a full apple means in Hollywood. But first, it's my interview with farmer and chef Matthew Rayford. His new cookbook, Breast and Yam, Gullah Geechee Recipes from a Sixth Generation Farmer, explores his family's history, their food, and what it means to be Gullah Geechee. Matthew, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me, Chris. So let's talk about your ancestors. You're the great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, who I guess came from Cameroon originally, or...? Well, uh, Jupiter Gilliard was actually born enslaved in 1812 in the Carolinas. My ancestral background, after doing lots of tracing, is Ghana and Cameroon. And he, after the Civil War, uh, mm-hmm. had acquired quite a lot of land, actually, over 400 acres, square acres, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so in uh, 1874, Jupiter Gilliard purchased 476 acres of land. And now my sister and I are uh, farming, like physically farming, a little more than five acres of it. And that that includes animals and actually doing rice cultivation this year. But you you came back to the farm later in life, right? So I I left the area in 1985. Um, I went in the military for 10 years and did a lot of other things, but... In 2010, I was sitting there and something just welled up inside of me. And I just looked at my Nana and my mom and my my Aunt Mary Lou and was just like, we should go back to farming. And then the next thing you know, I'm back on the family land in 2011, putting in work, so they say. Is this a self-contained farm that is you're growing to feed animals or you're selling uh, to other farmers? What, what What is it that you produce? Some of the things we grow specifically just to give back to the animals, like this year we're going to finish off our Cooney Cooney hogs with sweet potatoes. So we're trying to grow out about 500 or so pounds of sweet potatoes. And then um, we also are growing rice this year as part of the Jubilee Justice Project, which is about people of African descent reclaiming rice and rice culture. And so um, this year we're planting a black rice, a red rice, and also an aborio. So what we're doing is three trials, uh, a trial on each one of the rices with peas planted Hmm. about two, three weeks after each set of the rice goes in. And they're basically going to be called in Gullah Geechee Reezy Peasy or rice and peas. 
Yeah, I saw that in your book, Reezy Peasy, mm-hmm. is your version of Hop and John, yep. essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, if you could just define Gullah Geechee, is it a is it a people? Is it a language? Maybe it's both. Oh yeah. So Gullah Geechee is a people, a place, a language. Um, it's all encompassing um, within the Low Country from people of African descent. There's also this conversation about what the the small differences are. Um, saltwater Geechee are folks that are raised on the islands, um, what a lot of people um, call the Sea Islands, which uh, run through the coast of the Carolinas all the way down to to North Florida. And then there's what you call freshwater Geechees, and those would be considered people that were a few miles inland. The farm that we're on, Gilliard Farms, is less than 15 minutes from the Jekyll Island Beach. Um, so let's talk about recipes. Um mm-hmm. So how do you do an oyster roast? I mean, I, I know you can just throw it on a on a grill and, and cook them quickly, but w- if you really want to do a real oyster roast, how does that work? So for me, we do oysters on hot tin. So um, back in the day when I was a kid, basically, you took some cinder blocks, laid a piece of tin on the top, popped some holes in it, get it super hot, like super, super hot. And you just throw your oysters on the top of it, and then you throw a wet burlap sack over. And you can hear the oysters when they pop. And as soon as you start hearing pop, you you pull that croaker sack off, and you start scooping those oysters off and popping them open. You hardly even need an oyster shucker at that point, because they, they usually pop enough for you to kind of like just take your fingers and open it up. <laughs> and so I kind of grew up you know, having an oyster roast like that. I was actually telling somebody a while back that I had been making cocktail sauce since I was like nine, 10 years old. And they were like, cocktail sauce? And I was like, yeah, like ketchup and horseradish and a little bit of lemon juice. And they were like, I would have never thought that someone in the deep South was making cocktail sauce. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's part of, you know, our culture. So like when I go somewhere and someone's like, oh man, they're having shrimp cocktail. And I'm like, uh, okay. Like I've been eating shrimp since I was a baby, you know? <laughs> so, so I noticed that you have a recipe for sitar roasted chicken. Uh, sitar oh, yeah. is my now favorite spice blend of all time. How, how did you come across it in first time? So, um, bene seed is something that is a uh, part of the Gullah Geechee culture, which bene seed, sesame seed, is all in the same. And so as a kid, my great-grandmother used to make this herb with sesame seed and oil. That's one of the ways we had roasted chicken. Hmm. And then through all of my travels, I had come across the tar, and every time I tasted it, it was reminiscent of home. And so I was like, you know, let me do a spatchcock chicken with roasted zatar. So I kind of grew up eating within those flavor profiles that are considered to be, you know, North African, Mediterranean, West African. Yeah, I've I've probably been eating something that resembled Zatar for as long as I can remember. Let's talk about biscuits, because I'm fascinated by biscuits. Now, when I make buttermilk biscuits, and this is the difference, I think, between the North and the South, maybe, I, Mm -hmm. I, I treat it, I barely touch it, right? I'm very gentle with it because I want to get a nice nice puff to it and a light texture. Right. You, you treat it a little bit more like French pastry in that you fold it, et cetera, mm-hmm. a number of mm-hmm. times. So you're into layering. You you want layered biscuits, right? Right, layered. You know, that, that look to where, like, yeah. you know, when you 
pull it apart. It kind of has that layer. And I think part of that also comes from my father, like watching him make biscuits, having had his background as a baker. I grew up eating French pastries because my dad would make, you know, laminated dough, you know, the night before. And then we'd get up and he'd, I mean, the smell of like cinnamon, brown sugar and Mm -hmm. apples or pears and the like were always like in the house. And so it was funny because there's a picture of my dad and I in the book and he was like, I'm not eating this until you tell me how you made it. And so I start telling him how I made it. He's like, boy, you actually watched me do that back in those days? And I said, yeah. I said, that's how I learned how to make this. And he dove into it and he was like, I'm so proud of you now. And I was like, oh, so now 20-something years later, you're proud of me? <laughs> like that kind of thing. And he starts laughing. He was like, well, you know, he was like, like you always say, cooking is lifelong learning. Matthew, it's been uh, it's just been a pleasure. Thank you. And I just loved every minute of it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was farmer and chef Matthew Rayford. His new cookbook is Bress and Yam, Gullah Geechee Recipes from a Sixth Generation Farmer. It's time for my co-host, Sarah Moult and I, to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So I recently interviewed the owners of Honey & Co. They have three restaurants in London. They're from the Middle East. They wrote a book called Chasing Smoke. And the whole idea was that the way people grill around the Mediterranean, especially in the Levant, Turkey, Egypt, etc., is totally different than what we do, right? Because we think about grilling burgers and steaks, etc., but they do mostly vegetables, Really? And they put the food right on the coal sometimes. Wow. And it's so interesting because it's cooking over wood. It's not backyard barbecue. And it just made me think that how we've been doing it here for a few generations is so limited in terms of the scope. I mean, they'll grill fruits and make salads out of them, for example. They grill potatoes. They obviously grill eggplant a lot. Do you have any ways of grilling when you get outside that are a little different than what most people do? No, I love everything you just said. Now, I love grilling and high heat roasting vegetables. I feel like it really concentrates their flavor, gets rid of the excess liquid. I mean, I hated zucchini till I started, well, either broiling it or grilling it, you know, thin sliced zucchini, because I just thought it was boring and watery. But what you're talking about sounds fantastic. It's just redefining the art. And so anyway, yes, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Brian from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hi, Brian. How can we help you today? So I've been living a low-gluten, low-carb lifestyle for a few years and, you know, really have come to enjoy it. The question I have really is about trying to figure out how to infuse vegetables with a lot of great flavor. Like cauliflower rice has been very popular and I've come to like it a lot, but when I add it to sauces and try to infuse flavor, it ends up kind of tasting like cauliflower in a sauce. All right. I'm thinking of the pilaf model of rice. Let's say we start with extra virgin olive oil. I would start with some finely chopped onions. Then I would add some minced garlic. Chris won't agree with any of this, but I'm going to keep going. And then I would add the cauliflower and the spices that you want to flavor it with, like ground cumin or even toasted cumin. But also you could add the paprikas are wonderful. And toasting them with the cauliflower in the oil with the onion and garlic will really help. Some tomato paste. And then add a little bit of, you know, nicely flavored chicken broth. 
and keep simmering. I think that would give it a nice aroma. And if you are going to put a sauce on it, do a thicker sauce that will coat the little grains of cauliflower more. A few other suggestions. It's really easy to roast it whole. You can put a wet sort of chili paste or herb paste on it where you roast it. You can finish off with tahini. You can cut planks of cauliflower and roast those. Yeah, I love those. And that's it's just so much easier to do. You mentioned vegetables in general. You can do the sizzling oil method from China and other places where you put sliced scallions and minced ginger on top of the vegetable and then put about a quarter cup of very hot oil, drizzle that on, and that blooms the ginger and the scallions. And then you could use the Tarka method from India, which is to take a little bit of oil, like a quarter cup, heat it up with some spice. Aleppo pepper is particularly good, but you could use Sichuan peppercorns, you could use cumin, you could use turmeric, whatever you want. And then you have a flavored oil, and you can steam your vegetables or however you want to cook them, and then drizzle that oil on top at the end. Those are just quick, easy ways. Keep the vegetable simple, but it's just what you put on it really at the end of cooking, and that's really so easy to do. The oil in what Chris just said is an important component here because oil is a conductor of flavor. So when you add the herbs and all the other things to the oil, it will help to really carry it. Okay, maybe that's what I'm missing. You've got great ideas. I think the oil might be the key. Or put a pound of ground pork in with a cauliflower <laughs> and rice. <laughs> that would add a lot of flavor. Or not. <laughs> right. That would be awesome. Right. All right, thank Take you care. Thanks, Bye. Brian. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Barbara, and I'm from Palm Coast, Florida. And how can we help you? Well, I love to dip chocolates, and my favorite center is buffalo sponge candy, which is a crunchy yellow foam that you cook the sugar and corn syrup and then add baking soda to make it puff up. But I've used two different recipes, and my candy never turns out right. One uses some vinegar at the beginning, but the Mm -hmm. sponge deflates and crumbles with giant bubbles. And the other uses gelatin at the end, and it turns out rock hard with tiny bubbles. What am I doing wrong? Well, let's go back. So what temperature does the sugar syrup have to end up at? Uh, One of my recipes says 300, and the other says 310. And what kind of thermometer are you using? I'm using an old-fashioned mercury candy thermometer. I've used the digital ones, too. I use a thermopen, which is an extremely expensive, like 90-something dollar digital thermometer, but it's really precise. I think it's probably the temperature of the sugar syrup is the critical thing. The vinegar, I've never seen that, but Sarah? Let me ask you a question, Barbara. What texture would you like this candy to have? It should be crunchy, but not break your teeth when you bite into it. Uh-huh. And not giant bubbles so that it crumbles all over. So somewhere in between. So what happens, I assume, mm-hmm. when you add the baking soda is the whole thing sort of foams up. Yes. And then what happens after you add the baking soda? Well, the one with the vinegar, at least, deflates in the middle, a big sinkhole in the center. Well, it probably made the baking soda go way up and then way down. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'd say... Forget about the vinegar. Yeah, that extra acid's going to overreact with the baking soda. Okay. You might want to Google the place that sort of made it famous and see what mm-hmm. you can find out from their method. And then maybe even just call them up and see if perhaps they would help you. Fowler's is one of the places there, right, that does it? Yes. I would spring for a really good digital thermometer. It doesn't have to be from Thermoworks, but get a good one. 
and make sure you take multiple readings because that's the thing that's the killer. And dump the vinegar and just make sure it's a dry day because you've now picked the most difficult candy in the most difficult part of cooking ever. I mean, candy making is hard, but this particular thing's even harder. Yeah. <laughs> so everything's got to be just right. I agree with Sarah. I just call them up. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I mean, they'll take your call. Other thing I would do is just take a bunch of pictures while you're making it. Mm-hmm. And just send it to them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. I bet they've been doing this so long they could figure it out. Yeah. I will try that. This was my mom's favorite candy, which is why I finally decided to start learning to make it because I couldn't find it in the stores where I grew up. Or call Fowler's and have them ship you 10 pounds. <laughs> that, that would be... Oh, that, that's even better. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Spend that's 20 easy. bucks and you're good to <laughs> yeah. go. We got great suggestions. Yeah. Just mail Just order. go buy it. Right, right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, All take right, care. Barbara. Thanks for calling. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need a hand in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Richard. I'm from Penn Valley near Philadelphia. How are you? I'm good. Recently got a sous vide machine, and I've been using it like crazy. I love it. But I also buy a lot of meat in bulk. And I have a vacuum machine. And my problem is, I don't know whether to salt the meat before I vacuum it and put it in the freezer, which it might be in there for six months, or freeze it without salting it, and then salt it when it comes out, or forget about salt altogether. Great question. I spoke to Kenji Lopez-Alt, and he's done a lot of work on sous vide. His take is that if you salt it and then vacuum seal it and throw it in the freezer, it will actually change the texture of the meat. Oh, um, okay. It ended up a little bit like a cured ham or something. So you will get a version of that, which you probably won't love in terms of texture. I would take it out, sous vide it, and then you obviously sous vide it to a temperature a little bit lower than what you want to end up with. Why is that? I mean, if it's a steak, right, you're going to oh, sous vide yeah, it, yeah. then you're going to sear it. So sometimes I right. cook it to like 110 or 115 in the sous vide and then take it out and finish it on a grill or in a skillet. I would salt it either right before you finish cooking it or mm-hmm. salt it afterwards. But just don't salt it before you package okay, it. Okay, because I was thinking it. because it froze, it wouldn't actually keep tenderizing the meat or whatever it salt does. Well, it's going to take a long time for it to freeze, though, don't forget. Yeah, because I started to do the salt, and I haven't tried what it tastes like yet. I just, actually, the last porterhouse I just bought, I did one. Well, you know what? Good. I mean, try it. You may find the texture is fine. Great. I think you could do a test that way. Right, Sarah? Yeah, no, I, that's exactly where I was going to go. My inclination would be, no, don't you know salt it before you freeze it. But if you've got a really thick steak, I don't know, maybe yeah. it'd be okay. So I'd give it a shot. My worry was that I cook it without any seasoning in the bag, and then when I season it before I sear it, that's just not enough time for any of the flavors to get into the meat. That was my concern about doing it post-cooking. That's a good question. You know, what you might try is sous-viding it to a lower temperature, let's say 100, salting it, right, and letting it sit for maybe half an hour on a Mm. rack. And it's going to absorb, at that temperature, it's going to absorb the salt probably pretty quickly. Try that and then finish it in a skillet or grill. See see what happens. Yeah, I think that's an excellent suggestion. 
Yeah, there's so many ways to go with that. Do you think the type of meat matters? Lamb, pork? The reason salt gets inside meat is because positive, negative charges, the protein. Mm -hmm. So the salt gets drawn in because of the opposite charges, whereas other flavorings don't. That would be true of any meat protein, whether it's beef or lamb or pork. So it, it won't make any difference, I don't think. Cook it to 100, let it sit for an hour, well salted, and then finish it off. Positively, I'll try all three methods. Yeah. Richard, please let us know. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's science writer Nicola Temple on the history and future of processed foods. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it 
A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with biologist and science writer Nicola Temple. Her book, Best Before, The Evolution and Future of Processed Food, makes the case that not all processed foods are bad. Nicola, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. So let's define what food processing is. We think of it as a bad thing. or You think of it as, as just a description. Yeah, so processing food is any mechanical, thermal, or chemical alterations to change it somehow. So pretty much everything that we do to food, whether it's peeling a carrot or extruding some crazy snack like a crisp or Pringles, you know, that sort of thing. I think that it has become a bad word and that we need to be a bit more rational in our thinking about what processed foods are. We have a long history with them. We are arguably obligate processed food eaters. I mean, if we tried to go back to a, an entirely raw diet, we would really struggle with it. So how did processed food shape us going back to uh, the early days? The first evidence that we were probably starting to cook our food was with Homo habilis. They have much smaller teeth, uh, given their skull shape, jaw size, etc. And they so they lived around 2.4 to 1.4 million years ago. And you know they were using tools, so they were able to smash roots and 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 slice meat. And so it enabled sort of an evolution of smaller and smaller teeth, and that freed up, you know bone and muscle, some really expensive tissues to, to then be used elsewhere, say brain development, for example. And, you know, the theory is that that could have only happened with the taming of fire and, and cooking. And, you know, a cooked vegetable takes 22% less muscle to chew than a raw vegetable. So, you know, that's a significant change. And it's definitely shaped what we look like as humans and, and, and how we've evolved. So, okay, let's take frozen foods. So I, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Frozen foods were very popular. And I, you know, I, I look down my nose at frozen foods, except for maybe frozen fruits occasionally. But you make the point that actually frozen foods may be much better than the fresh vegetables and the protocyls. So you want to make that uh, argument? 
Well, I think you're you're probably right. Frozen foods, certainly of a certain generation, have a stigma associated with them. But first of all, frozen foods have come a long way. So technology has made it possible that now foods are frozen within a couple of miles of where they were picked and within a few hours. So, of course, you're preserving far more of the nutrients Whereas, you know, there's sort of a classic example here in the UK, you can get this little tray of baby corns and and sugar snap peas wrapped up in a chive. And in fact, the baby corns are grown in Nairobi and we fly the chive and the packaging over from the UK to Nairobi, where people sit in a little factory just just on the grounds of the airport, wrapping the Nairobi produce up with these UK chives and then ship it all back. So, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, it looks great on the grocery store shelf. It looks really fresh, but it's traveled thousands of miles and is many days from having been picked. So, you know, compared to the flash freezing methods, uh, just no comparison. That's an horrendous story. It is. I mean, you have like ten thousand miles of travel to get something on your on your shelf. Um, you, you you talked about cheese, and, and cheese, of course, you know, is a great way of preserving milk. Uh, But you said something I didn't think about, ever thought about, which was that you said it helped our farming ancestors to get around their lactose intolerance. Yeah. So obviously, as mammals, we drink milk. Other mammals drink milk. But, you know, we're the only mammals to drink milk into our adolescence and adulthood, quite frankly. So, you know, normally um, people who aren't tolerant to lactose will start to, at about the age of eight, uh, they stop producing the enzyme that allows them to break it down. And that's quite natural. But, you know, by essentially fermenting the milk, either as yogurt or as cheese, it reduces the intolerance, essentially, it, it, it breaks down the, the lactose that people can't break down. And so that means that we were able to get a huge source of protein and Dairy is very rich in vitamin D, uh, high in fat, so it's a really good nutritional source without having the ill effects, shall we say, of dairy. So fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, you say, are uh, there's more going on behind the scenes. Um, so ethanol blockers, uh, edible film of sorts to prevent browning as it is, uh, some kind of preservative cocktail – uh, so those baby carrots in the bag are not quite what they seem? Yeah, all of these fresh vegetables. I mean, you you know if you grow your own vegetables that a carrot is going to start to oxidize and turn brown. Um, you know, those bagged lettuce leaves that we love to get to, for easy ready-made salads. You know, when you pick your own lettuce leaves in your garden, they start to wilt, you know, on the way back from the garden right. before you're even in the house. Right. And so our food manufacturers are having to try and counter all that. And I guess the balance is, okay, so they're they're changing the environment inside the bag. They're getting really smart about the packaging. You know, it lets some gases in and it lets some gases out. But I suppose is it, the overall effect is, are people consuming more vegetables as a result of that because we've made them more convenient? And does that outweigh, you know, the fact that we're, pumping some ethylene blockers in, <laughs> into our packaging. <laughs> well, you, you answered that question in your book. You said, 
Americans, which I thought was interesting, are not eating more vegetables than they did 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. um, the answer is no. So is there a line you will not cross that is processed foods that you think are over-processed and, and not something you want to consume? Yeah, I think, you know, oils obviously are refined and flour and sugar and spices and salt. So that is perfectly acceptable to me. But I have to redefine that line with everything. Um, I told a story about feeling like a super mom one day because I woke up and realized that my son had no, he really likes flour tortilla wraps for his lunch and we didn't have any. And so I thought, well, I make bread all the time. This is no problem. I can, I can do this. And so I made some wraps and sent him off to school and, and there were obviously extras. And so when I came out of my home office to have lunch that day and picked up the wrap. It was like a, a Frisbee. I could have scraped mm. paint off the wall with it. It was, it was incredibly hard. So I looked it up and commercial flour tortillas contain a humectant, you know, a, a compound that attracts water and keeps them pliable mm. and moist for longer. And I thought, okay, yep. I didn't know what that was before. Humectants kind of sounded like a scary word, but once I figured out what it was, it's it's actually just the backbone of all fatty molecules that are in plants and animals. And that was no longer scary to me. And I am perfectly happy with the pliable <laughs> wraps mm. in the grocery store now. So um, I guess my answer to you is that I have to constantly redefine what that is and understand what it is. But I, I do, you know, I admittedly do try to, stick to minimally processed foods as much as I possibly can. So in all your research for the book and writing the book, what hopeful signs did you come up with in terms of the ability of the industry and and food processing to make a better future? One of the things that's sort of on the forefront of food at the moment is precision fermentation, for example. So can you take cow DNA and, you know, microbes like bacteria and fungi, and in a great big vat, can you produce casein and whey and lactose and all of the essential macromolecules that are necessary to produce milk without actually having the dairy industry? And Hmm. I know that might be controversial, but, you know, the dairy industry is producing about 3% of our greenhouse gas emissions, more than aviation and shipping combined. So, you know, maybe the dairy farmers then turn to, to creating these huge vats of fermenting microbes, who knows, and use their land for other things. So I think that there are some things on the horizon that are going to take some careful communications. You know, it's it's essentially asking people to sort of reset their understanding of naturalness, I guess, but that potentially offers some real hope in terms of reducing the environmental impact of the food industry. I think one of the themes of the book is technology, you know, going back to Napoleon, was applied to solve a critical problem, which is to save lives. Uh, And so, and preserve food, and preserving food, of course, is the basis for almost all cooking initially. And now we're using technology, even nanotechnology and sugar, to not save lives, but perhaps ruin lives. (laughs) Maybe you could could take that extreme example, or at least to, to... make a product that's going to sell better, like sugar that has fewer calories. So it's, it's like technology, at the beginning of these things, is used wisely and for good reason. Mm. And now it's strictly about market share and cost of goods, right? Yeah, to a large extent. And I guess 
I mean, you're sort of hitting at the crux of the book, which is, as consumers, as much as we can learn about what is happening with our food and how our food is processed and and manufactured, um, we have the ability to sort of tell the industry what is acceptable to us and what is not, because food technology can also be used to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and and to help redistribute food so that we don't have, you know, a, a third of the world obese and a third of the world's malnutrition. So, you know, there's there's real room for good in the world with food technology. And so I guess the point of my book was to really open up that conversation and saying it's, it doesn't have to all be bad, but let's choose the things that we think are right. Nicola, it's been a, a real pleasure. Uh, and thank you so much for being on Mill Street. The pleasure's been mine. Thank you so much. That was writer Nicola Temple. Her book is Best Before, The Evolution and Future of Processed Food. You know, there are two kinds of processed foods. Foods that are fermented, dried, or cooked to preserve it, think of evaporated milk, and then commercially processed foods that are designed to make them more profitable, less expensive to produce, or maybe more appealing to the consumer. Well, the first kind produces yogurt, cheese, prosciutto, balsamic vinegar, and soy sauce. The second has given us the wonders of frosted flakes and Pop-Tarts. Yet today, there is a third type of processed food, processing that is used to perhaps solve global problems, I think of hamburgers without beef or maybe milk without cows. So instead of inventing a new flavor of cheese doodle, maybe technology can once again offer hope for a better future. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, seared shrimp tacos with tomatoes and cotilla. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Of course you're doing great. You got back from Mexico City a month ago, uh, and you were on the taco trail. Now, you know, there's nothing new about tacos, but I think you actually did discover a lot that was new, right? Well, you know, if nothing else, I realized how little I actually understand about tacos. It really blew me away. You know, in Mexico City, which is really, I mean, tacos are, of course, everywhere in Mexico, but Mexico City, because of immigration patterns, it's really the hub of tacos from all over the country. And I learned that anything, absolutely anything can be a taco. You know, the simplest taco is a warm, fresh corn tortilla with a little bit of salt sprinkled on it. I got to tell you, it sounds obvious, but it's so good. It just really blew me away. And it's also an easy recipe, two ingredients. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hard to mess that one up. You know, as I ate my way across the city, I worked with a chef, Josefina Lopez-Mendez, and she's well known for taking classic recipes and kind of giving them a little bit of a refresh, but staying true to the essence of the recipe. And she introduced me to a shrimp taco called Tacos Gobernador. And I got to tell you, it blew my mind. It was so good. So I hate to ask the obvious question, but are we about to have a marriage of shrimp and cheese? We are indeed. And I know you're dubious. Boy, is it good. She takes fresh shrimp tomatoes, habanero, and some onion, and gives them a quick saute. And the quick part, of course, is key to keeping the shrimp tender and plump. And before you know it, it's done, like minutes. And then she tucks those into a wonderful warm corn tortilla, and she pairs it with, I know, casillo, which is a kind of a stringy cheese similar in texture to mozzarella, especially once it melts. 
And she actually took that cheese, smeared it onto the tortilla, and then flipped the tortilla upside down onto the pan, the kamal, and kind of toasted, melted it all together, and then piled on the shrimp and the tomatoes and the onions and the chili. And it was so good, it blew me away. I've had casilla as well, but that's not that easy to find here, right? Yeah, we had a little trouble sourcing it. And so we kind of, you know, had to look around for what's a good Mexican cheese that we could substitute and still try to stay true to the flavors and to, you know, the origins of the recipe. And we ended up going with cotija, which has kind of a very similar briny flavor and kind of dry, crumbly texture as feta cheese. And we liked that because the brininess of the cotilla played well off of the shrimp and the tomatoes. In the end, it kind of simplified the recipe because you don't have to do the toasting bit that uh, Josefina did. And it is just every bit as delicious as what I had in Mexico City. So you go to Mexico, you eat tacos, your mind is blown. And Mm -hmm. you learn also, the other thing I like about the story is that food changes, right? I mean, people in Mexico City, as they are around the world, are messing with tradition and always doing something new. Absolutely. And they don't hesitate to reinterpret and make it work for them today. The story of food. JM, thank you so much. Thank you. You can get this recipe for seared shrimp tacos with tomatoes and cotija at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett take a bite out of the apple and explain the origins behind their favorite apple idioms. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Philip, and I am from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Philip. How can we help you today? So I was reading a recipe the other day that looked good. It was a shrimp toast, just a piece of white bread with uh, lemon, dill, like a mayonnaise and creme fraiche-based sauce, and then it called for that packaged, frozen, cooked, like tiny shrimp the size of like a quarter. And so I immediately wrote that off and thought, okay, if I make this, I'll get some larger shrimp, uncooked, from the counter, make it myself. And that gave me pause, and I thought, okay, what is it I have against this teeny tiny shrimp? I assume it's low quality, but I don't know if that's the case. And so I'm wondering if what your take on it is. No, I think they're perfectly fine. And, you know, where they are appropriate are places where you would have chopped up the shrimp anyway. You know, like if you're going to make a shrimp roll, like a lobster roll or, you know, shrimp salad kind of thing or if you want to put it into a taco filling. Well, you know, I was in L.A. recently and there was a shrimp taco, which was amazing. It was filled, obviously, with shrimp, but it had a binder that I think was pureed or chopped up shrimp. That makes sense. And so that would be great to help make a filling around larger shrimp, for example. But I would say in a salad or cakes, like shrimp cakes, like crab cakes, would be great. I mean, have you had them, Chris? Do you have any? Yeah, they're fine. But, you know, if you did a shrimp salad, you know, with mayonnaise, et cetera, it's going to be fine. Yeah. To answer your question, I don't think there's anything inherently lower quality. They're just smaller. They're just smaller. How do you feel about them coming pre-cooked? Yeah, that's, yeah. That is a little bit of a game changer, but that would be good, (laughs) you know, in a shrimp salad. You should look at the package, though, like for all shrimp. Is there anything in them other than shrimp? Because they do put, uh, I've forgotten the name of the the chemical, but it holds onto water, which means that they weigh more. Mm. And you don't, really don't want that. So you might want to just see if they – or maybe they brine them or they add some kind of salt. Or, yeah, you don't want that. So you might want to check the bag. For yeah. And okay. you know what? Would you report back and let us know how it goes? Yeah. I mean, it's a perfect – or it looked like a perfect summer recipe, so I will be trying it soon. Great. Thanks for calling. Yes, Good thank luck. you. Thanks for having me. This is Milk Street Radio. Stuck in a rut? Give us a call. That number is 855-426-9843. 
Once again, 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Wendy. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you, Chris? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, my pleasure. So I'm calling from the Pacific Northwest, the Oregon coast. I work for a small family restaurant and bakery. Kind of my dream job. I got a job decorating cakes. <laughs> and I'm calling in about buttercream frostings. You're having trouble with them? They're not lasting? Uh, you don't like the flavor? What? I have five different buttercream frostings I'm working with. And I think the one that's giving me the hiccup with our various temperatures and humidity is a praline frosting with crushed walnuts and honey in it. And it's just tacky, and I cannot get it to a consistency. It's one of the few cakes that I don't actually pipe. You know, I'm doing the frosting, and it's a three-layer cake, and I'm just having trouble with that particular frosting. Well, I love frostings. I've done Italian frostings and the Swiss version, meringue versions of buttercream, where you add a sugar syrup. Yes. But I recently discovered my favorite buttercream recipe of all time, which you might be able to adapt, is from Stella Parks. She wrote Brave Tart. And she has something called marshmallow buttercream. Have you heard about this? I have. And I saw that recently in The Joy of Cooking, yeah. I made this recipe. I just did it for one of my kids' birthdays two weeks ago. You do a sugar syrup, right? You bring it up to 250, including some corn syrup. You put it in a big standing mixer. When it cools off to 212, you add gelatin, and that's your base. You let that sit and cool down, and then you eventually mix that in with the butter for the buttercream. The gelatin base gives you this incredible texture, and it's easy to frost, and three days later, you have a great frosting. It still holds up nicely. Ah, that's always a trick that we like. Yeah, especially if you're a commercial bakery, that's important. Get this off Serious Eats website, or you can just Google Stella Park's marshmallow buttercream recipe, but it is stunning. It's not the easiest <laughs> frosting to make. I would think you could use that as a base, and you could flavor it any way you okay. want, but it, it's going to give you a great texture, and it's a dream to frost. It's just great. Oh, thank you so much. Now, can I call you back and let you know how that goes? We'd like you to do that. We always like that because then we can educate everybody. I agree with okay. Chris. Stella Parks is a genius. Absolutely try her buttercream. And do let us know. Stella Parks, excellent. And I will look that up immediately. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks, Wendy. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. I love the flavor of buttermilk for brining chicken for frying, but not so much the chewy texture it gives to the skin. And let's be honest, crispy skin is why we eat fried chicken in the first place. Instead of regular buttermilk, now I use buttermilk powder, about two teaspoons per piece of chicken, along with my favorite seasonings to make a dry brine. And I brine the chicken for six to 12 hours before breading. I get all the flavor and the tenderness in the meat that buttermilk produces, but the exterior fries up crispy, not chewy, with the powder. You should be able to find buttermilk powder in your local supermarket. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. 
Next up, it's a language lesson from Grant Baird and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant Martha, how you guys doing? We're doing great, Chris. Hi, Chris. What's up? I don't know. You tell me. Well, Martha and I have been digging around, and we got to the bottom of something really fundamental, and that is that a lot of our sayings have to do with apples. And, you know, I lived for a long time in New York City, and it's known as the Big Apple, and I wondered, Chris, if you had any idea why it was called the Big Apple. I should know this. I I have absolutely no idea. It was some stupid marketing campaign, I know. But well, whatever. it was a marketing campaign in the 1970s, but the 1970s campaign rejuvenated a saying that had started much earlier. There was a sports columnist by the name of John J. Fitzgerald who covered horse racing, and he used it a bunch of times in his newspaper columns hmm. after hearing it from some black stable hands in New Orleans in the very early 1920s. And... It turns out that it may have been used for a bunch of different cities, including Los Angeles, to mean any big city, but it stuck for New York City alone. And so fast forward to the 1970s, New York City's having a terrible time. You know, remember, this is the graffiti days, the bad budget days, lots of crime days of New York City. And before you know it, Big Apple with the big red apple logo starts appearing on billboards and T-shirts and bumper stickers and television ads. And now Big Apple is pretty standard for a nickname for New York Uh City. (laughs) I lived in New York in the early 70s. There we go. You remember. Having my VW broken into every third week. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) Right. You put the sign on the window that says no radio, no nothing, right? Yes. I I did exactly that. So Grant was talking about the Big Apple, and I want to talk about full apple and half apple. Do you have any idea what those are? Outside of cooking, though, right, Martha? It is definitely outside of cooking, and it and it doesn't have to do with literal apples, actually. Full apple and half apple are both industry jargon in Hollywood. Huh. A full apple is a box that you will put under a very short actor to make him or her look taller. So you have a full apple, which is a large box. You have a half apple, which is a smaller box. You have a quarter apple, which is even smaller. And if the, if the huh. actor does doesn't need that much help, then you're going to use an eighth apple, which is also known as a pancake. Well, you know, I, I, I read somewhere recently there was a movie with a particularly short leading man, mm-hmm. and his co-star, a woman, was sig- like a foot taller. Mm-hmm. So they dug a trench. So, she ah. was, so when they walked towards the camera, they were both about the same height, but she was about a foot down on the ground just to even things out. I, it's, it's, that's pretty interesting. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Well, another one of the nicknames for the Apple Box when it's used to make an actor taller is a man maker hmm. where a Danny DeVito can become a Don Juan. <laughs> but they also use it for lights or cameras huh. or other equipment or just to sure. make anything on set a little taller. Yeah, and the idea is that it resembles the kind of box that you used to uh, store apples in. Well, can I ask about an apple a day, though? You know, because I looked that up within the last year. It turns out an apple a day, is this true? It was just a marketing campaign? It wasn't actually an old saying, is that right? No, it was an old saying. Yeah, it goes back quite a ways. It goes back centuries, in fact, well before marketing. And the idea was that you needed to eat your your fruit and veg in order to make sure that, that you were getting a certain amount of vitamins, including whatever vitamins he was in there. 
So in medieval Britain, people were walking around going an apple a day. <laughs> well, I don't know about going around, but certainly during the winter months before refrigeration, uh, uh, even a wrinkly old apple was better than no fruit or vegetable right. at all. You needed right. that to make sure that you weren't getting scurvy or, or rickets or other diseases like that. I feel so much better that you told me that it's a real saying. Good. I... You know. Chris, I want to go back. There's another connection between New York and apples, and it connects to the cinema term for apples as well. Um, There are city names that refer to the way that you might position apple boxes on a Hollywood set. So if you put a apple box in the tallest position, it's known as New York or the third position. And if it's in its flattest position, it's the Texas or first position. And if you put it on its side, it's the California or the second position. How about that? See, making movies is harder than I thought. You you, you need to have a whole crate of apple boxes. (laughs) Martha, I'm thinking about apples in the wild and how hard it is to pick them. You ever gone out and picked your own? I have indeed. I, I did that in Vermont and it was a blast until I got <laughs> until I got the ones that were low-hanging fruit as it were and then you know I couldn't reach them anymore which was uh, really frustrating. But there's a financial term that you might not realize has to do with apples, and that's the term windfall. You know, we think of uh, windfall referring to Mm. money that you weren't expecting to get. But early on, hundreds of years ago, windfall referred to fruit that was literally knocked down by the wind. This is an old-fashioned expression, uh, Chris, but let me ask you if you know it. Have you ever heard of to cut or slice the melon? No. It's another expression that means to split a large pot of money or something like a lottery winning or corporate earnings or, you know, dividends or something like that. It dates back to the early 1900s or so. Um, It's not used much anymore, but there was a time where you might read in the newspapers about, say, a bunch of workers who bought a lottery ticket together. And then they when they won, they they sliced the melon, meaning they each took a share. Well, I'll take a half Texas and a slice melon <laughs> and a windfall. I'll be good. Grand Martha, thank you so much. Uh, from apples to melons. You're the apple of our eye, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Are. Take care now. <laughs> Bye-bye. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking course, or order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire and production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.